0: Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us this morning. Make our hearts soft towards your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we are in uh, 1 Timothy, and we're coming today to the first part of the second chapter, uh, which is verses 1 to 7, so let's read it. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority— so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So some of this we're going to get to next week. There'll be a little bit of overlap, but we'll get the first half at least today. Uh, I want to point out two things that we have to understand as we come to this passage. They're kind of background things that help make sense of what he's saying here. First of all, remember that this letter The whole letter, as we've seen for the last couple of weeks, is all in the context of bad teachers in the church at Ephesus. Remember this? Going back to chapter 1. And so, there are elders and teachers in the church who are teaching strange doctrines, is what the Apostle Paul calls it in chapter 1, and paying attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering The administration of God, which is by faith. That's what he says back in chapter 1. And these men, he says, have strayed away from love and a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith and have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. That's all what he says, that's the beginning and that's the context of the whole, everything he says in here is is built on that reality, or has that reality as the background, okay? That is why the Apostle Paul left Timothy there in Ephesus. His job is to shut these men down, to tell them to stop teaching these things. And so our passage today is related to all of that. How do we know? What? Then. First of all, then, okay? That word then, also translated very often, therefore, all right? It's pointing back, and he's building on it. And we're going to come back to the importance of that then, (laughs) or therefore. We'll come back to that probably at the beginning of next week. It really is important, but we can't cover that today. So that's the first thing, all right? Everything he says here is related to what he's already said and the context of the situation what's going on in Ephesus. Secondly, the second thing we need to see is that there's a theme throughout really first and second Timothy and even Titus and a lot of the other letters that the Apostle Paul writes to the churches in, in the New Testament. There's a theme that he comes back to over and over again that helps us make sense of what he says here. And this is what it is the church must live in such a way that when outsiders or unbelievers, people outside the church, when outsiders or unbelievers look at us, believers, they have no excuse to dishonor God. All right? When outsiders look at us, Christians, they, they should have no excuse to dishonor God that comes from us. So, for example, here's places just in the rest of 1 Timothy. Look at what it says. 1 Timothy 3, we'll get to that soon. This is talking about uh, officers in the church, elders, pastors, overseers, right, the words that are used. And one of the characteristics or qualities of the elder, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. It's one of the, one of the, the qualities, the character traits of an, of an officer of the church is that he must have a good reputation with outsiders, people outside the church, okay? He goes on in chapter five, verse 14, therefore, when he's talking about uh, widows, uh, kind of young and old, and he deals with them a little bit differently, but with younger widows, he says, therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. That's always in the, not the back of his mind, but the front of his mind, all through this, all right? And then First Timothy 6, 1. He's talking about, in their context, slaves and masters. He says, all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. So this is, this is right in the front of his mind over and over again. We The church has to live in such a way that, God is, that we don't give the world an excuse to dishonor God because of our behavior or our demeanor. All right? Titus. All right? Titus 2. Look at this. It comes up three times here when he's talking to the different categories of people in the church, men and women, old and young, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, work is at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Do you see that? That's the reason. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Then he says, likewise... Urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. There it is again. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect." That's kind of the positive way of putting it. Not just so that they won't have anything bad to say, but that they will, you'll beautify, you'll dress up, you'll make the, the doctrine beautiful, okay? But all of that is because people are watching. Everyone got that, right? Here's another example, just one last one. This is in 1 Thessalonians. And this is important because what he says, this quiet life here, so let me read it. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and to work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders those are the people outside the church and not be in any need what he's going to say in in the passage we're looking at today in 1 Timothy he talks about living a that we would have a quiet life okay same idea that is uh, the Apostle Paul. Here is this very obviously very concerned about this because he does he he says it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Okay, over and over again. The way we live as church officers. All right, First Timothy three. The way we live as church officers. The way we live as wives and mothers. Uh, as young men and old men. As employees and, and workers. All of that. The way we live has the potential of either adorning or beautifying the doctrine of God our savior and thereby advancing the kingdom of God or giving the enemy every opportunity to mock God, to reproach and dishonor the word of God. Not because it's true, that's something different, okay? Unbelievers are gonna mock God because they hate him. That's something different. This is talking about us and giving them excuse, giving them good reason to mock God by our hypocrisy, right? By our failing to live up to the commandments of God, all these kinds of things. This is very much in the front of Paul's mind because Paul is a missionary and he's always concerned about the reputation of the church in the communities that he's planting these churches. We should be very concerned about this. Not in a compromising way at all, but taking these commands seriously. So that's constantly the background of everything he he writes here. Now, if we don't keep those two things in mind, this passage is going to be hard to understand. So the first thing, right, first thing to remember, he has those bad elders in mind. Even what he's saying here has them in the back of his mind. And second, he has the watching world in mind, and I would say that's in the front of his mind. All right? So look at what he says. All right, first of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. The words, first of all, uh, it's not really the start of a list of things he wants to write about because he says a lot before this, <laughs> you know, unless he's doing what pastors do when they say, now, lastly, and they go on for half an hour. I don't know. But, you know, he's, I don't think he's meaning um, order, but importance, right? This is, this is of utmost importance, what he's about to say. And he says, I urge. You see that, verse one? I urge, that's a very strong word. It's urgent, right? Urge is urgent. Uh, It's intense. Uh, I don't suggest here, and maybe, maybe you could think about this, no, I urge, all right? This is a heavy, intense word with authority. And so based on what I've already said, Timothy, It's of the utmost importance that you hear this strong exhortation, right? And the strong exhortation is what he's urging of utmost importance that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. In other words, the church must pray all kinds of prayers for every kind of person. All kinds of prayers for every kind of person. He just heaps up words here. And you you can get all, you know, technical and try to figure out what's the difference between an entreaty and a prayer and a petition and so on. And there was shades of meaning there, but he's just piling up words. All kinds of prayer. All kinds of prayer for every kind of person. All right? So every kind of person on behalf of all men. What he means here, I think, is every kind of person, not necessarily every individual, that's impossible. How can you pray for every individual on the face of the earth? That's literally impossible, right? But you can pray for all kinds of people. Uh, so Jew and Gentile, that's, that's always in the background here and it's really in the background of First Timothy. We'll get more into that next week. So Jew and Gentile, believer and unbeliever, okay? not just pray for your friends, not just for church people, but believer and unbeliever, high and low. How high? Well, matter of fact, right, what does he say next? Be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. He focuses, when he gets specific When he starts talking about the type of person, the class of person, right? The class of man that the believers in Ephesus would not be prone to pray for. These are the the men that they would not be prone to pray for, and he focuses on them. Pray for all kinds of prayers for kings and for all who are in authority. Now, feel the tension with this, okay? We studied the book of Acts not too long ago. And all through the book of Acts, what do we see? How did the rulers, how did the civil magistrates, normally Gentiles, right, because they're in power because of Rome, how did they usually respond to the Christians? With um, respect, tolerance, helpfulness, as nursing fathers for, for the church, you know? No. They were the ones who tried over and over and over again to stamp them out, especially when they were riled up by the Jews, which is what always happened. You remember the book of Acts, right? The Jews would rile up the Gentile leaders to stamp out the Christians. Mm -hmm. In the early years of the church, there was this poisonous nexus, for lack of a better term, this, this web, this connection between Jewish exclusivity and Gentile power. And so the Jews hated Gentiles, kind of generically, right? They hated Gentiles. And the Jews by and large hated Jesus and they hated the disciples of Jesus and the Jews generally didn't have the legal power and the authority to wipe out those who believed in Jesus. They had to manipulate the Gentiles into doing that for them. That's what we saw all through the book of Acts, remember? And yet even though the Jews used the Gentiles to do their dirty work and were pretty smarmy in the way they did that, You know, and and flattering, and all those kinds of things. The reality is, they hated the Gentiles. The Gentiles were useful useful to them to get their dirty work done of wiping out the uh, the Christians. The Jews were elitist and exclusivist. This is important, and you you will get a flavor of this. But I really can't really talk about this until next week. But this is very important. This is part of the background. That's one reason that the Jews hated Jesus and the Apostle Paul, because the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ was for all men everywhere, including the Gentiles. And so, you know, Christians were bad enough. The Apostle Paul, in a Jewish mind, he's the worst of them all, because he's eating with Gentiles, right? And the Jews don't. So this is a big deal. Paul's the apostle of the Gentiles. So in other words, the civil magistrates... We're not usually friendly to the Christians. Uh, almost never friendly to the Christians, sometimes tolerated a little bit here and there, but not really. But the Apostle Paul urges Timothy to have the church pray, all kinds of prayers for that class of men who were the sworn enemies of King Jesus. First of all, Timothy, make certain that you and the church are praying for kings and for all who are in authority. Now, we know that fits perfectly with the rest of Scripture, right? Civil authority is ordained by God. Even when that authority is against the cause of Christ, we should honor it for Christ's sake because all authority is instituted by God, Romans 13. Um, That doesn't mean we obey authority blindly or in opposition to the commands of Christ or of God. But there's an attitude of, 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 of um, honor. Uh, Peter says, fear God, honor the king, right? And so we should pray. The sin of godless leaders should, should not keep us from praying for them. It should motivate us to pray for them. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? We should not hate them. They're just us. They're just us apart from Christ. Pray for them. Pray for them. Now, if I ask you to pray for me, right, we ask each other to pray for one another all the time, right? If I ask you to pray for me or to pray for for someone else, what do you want to know? What do you want to know? Well, yeah, what? What do you, what? Why? Why should I pray for you and what for, right? That's, those are the questions, what to pray for and why, and those things are connected. So when the Apostle Paul tells us to pray for our rulers, he does both, but he starts with the why, and then I think he goes to the what, all right? First, he tells us why to pray for our rulers, and then he makes it clear what we're to pray for. So what's the, what's the purpose of our prayers for our rulers, all right? Uh, first of all, I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions, thanks be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are authority. So that, see the so that? That's telling us why. That's the purpose. That's what he's getting at, the reason for it, the r- result that he hopes for, okay? So that we would, may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And so we're to pray for our rulers, for kings, don't have any kings, okay? How about presidents? Uh, presidents, governors, representatives, mayors, council members, all, all, whatever your context is for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, what does that mean? It means that there is a, there's something about our rulers and how they rule that will allow us Christians to lead tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity and our pr- praying for the authorities as the good of the church in view. Do you see that? So that we may lead a quiet life. So the praying for the authorities has the good of the church in view. So what does he mean by us Christians living tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity? Well, I, I think he's talking about living a peaceful life as Christians in public before the watching world. Remember, that's one of the main things he's very concerned about, is how we live in front of the world, who is watching, right? So he's talking about living as a peaceful lives as Christians in public. He's talking about how we live in the open, before the public eye. That's one of his major concerns. Live in such a way that you have a good reputation with outsiders. Live in such a way that you give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Live so that the name of our God and our doctrine will not be spoken against, so that the word of God will not be dishonored, so that the opponent will, will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. I'm just quoting what he says all, all through those passages I already read. Live in such a way that you will adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior in every respect. That's what these words mean in verse 2, so that we may live lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Godliness is a particular word that means, when we think godliness, what do we think? We think inner, kind of quiet, kind of, you know, private, everything that happens in my heart kind of stuff. Character, that's not what this word means. It means public worship, actually. All right, it's what the world sees of us as we worship God. Public piety, not private, but public. And then dignity is our public dealings with men. Uh, I think the King James uses the word honesty. Honesty, it's how we deal with integrity with people outside the church, with everybody out there. So we, we, we live in such a way that they see our public godliness And we live in such a way that they say our public integrity. Does that make sense? He's always worried about that, as we should be as well. So don't be a fruitless speculator. Think about what he said about these false teachers in in Ephesus. Don't be a fruitless speculator. Don't be a busybody. Don't be an academic theoretical Christian who sticks your head down in these myths and genealogies and esoteric points about the law. Don't be a useless Christian. Okay? Be a public Christian, but be a good public Christian. Uh, Not a stink for all the wrong reasons. Okay? Live with dignity and godliness in public. You know, here's an idea love your neighbor. (laughs) Talking to me, here's an idea, (laughs) right? Let's love our neighbors. This has everything to do with how how we adorn the gospel, the doctrine. It's public. And love your civil magistrates. Yes, even the ones who want to kill you. All right, don't have any of those right now? Okay. Love the ones who want to make your life miserable. Uh, Maybe. Love the ones who just don't like you. How's that? Is that, is that easy? No. It's, it's easier than loving the ones who want to kill us. That's what they were dealing with. All right. Love them how? Well, here's one way. Love them by praying for them. What happens when we pray for our civil magistrates? Two things. We, we soften our hearts towards them. Right? When we're praying for them, there's, we have to soften our hearts toward them. We have, to, we have to take pity on them. We have to want the good. We want to want, want what's good for them. So something happens in us when we, when we pray for them. We become tranquil and quiet. Not um, freaking out not combative, not nasty, you know what I'm saying, but we love them. And so we become tranquil and quiet. We live in peace. And we fear God and we honor the king. So we soften our hearts toward them. And what happens to them when we pray for them? They are brought before the king of kings and lord of lords, right? The king of them, the king of kings, The Lord of lords, the magistrate of magistrates, right? We we bring them before him. And God, who knows? Maybe he'll take pity on them. And so what? Then they, the rulers, come to bow their knee to King Jesus. They come to kiss the son, as Psalm 2 talks about, addressing them as rulers. And they bow their knee to King Jesus. They begin to rule with wisdom and true justice and they become nursing fathers to the church, which is a term that our old confessions use all the time. So that's the why of our praying. I have two minutes left. But especially, uh, the why of our praying for all men, but especially for our civil authorities. What's the what? What are we to pray for? And this is how we'll have to close today. The answer starts in verse three. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. What is? Well, this, praying for our rulers, right, is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Why? Because he is the kind of God who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, praying for our authorities. Why? Because he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So what are we to ask God to do for our civil authorities? Well, you name it, but ultimately, pray for them that they would come to a knowledge of the truth. To save them. He is God our Savior. Pray for them that God would save them and that he would bring them to a knowledge of the truth. That's the most loving thing you can pray for anyone and to seek and to want. You can't hate them and pray that for them, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we're gonna be done. We're gonna pick up next week and because the next paragraph kind of really comes off of this one and so we're gonna start with a thought from the end of this paragraph and move on. Let me pray for us and we need to be done. Father, I pray that you would be with us now. Uh, help us to love our, the rulers who are over us, whether they are godly or wise or humble or not. And I do pray that you would bring them to a knowledge of your truth, that you would save them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.